Hello, Mary, and uh, welcome to the podcast. If you wouldn't mind just giving a little introduction of yourself, who you are, what your background is for the benefit of the listeners, just in case they don't know who you are, that would be great. Cool. Um, hi, Ben. Thanks for inviting me on the pod. Um, I'm Mary Stevens. I'm from the UK. Um, I run a karate and self-protection school um, here in Oxford. Um, and I also uh, project manage for Fair Fight, which is an NGO um, based in India and in Zimbabwe, um, where we have um, outreach to support um, vulnerable young women. What what got you started in with your NGO? Like, what was the impetus for 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 your beginning that work? Ah, you're going to love this. Um, so. You know, we, we, we mostly learn a lot from our children, don't we? And um, um, there, an, an email came around from our head association in London, from um, SOAS Jindakai, which is an international um, humanitarian karate organization led by um, Stephen Chan. And uh, it, it explained that there was a, um, an NGO which was trying to recruit um, people with experience in kind of beyond karate per se. So, you know, they had some karate stuff, but they wanted people that were more used to staff training and the kind of the, the Budo pedagogy, you know, beyond skills beyond the kicking and punching really, which is very much my specialism because I'm kind of like, um, been teaching children's martial arts for a long time. I'm very um, interested with the whole outside of the dojo um, implications of the lessons, the ethical lessons of martial arts. Um, and, you know, I, I was sitting with my feet up um, after a long day's teaching uh, and I, I was like, wow, that's a brilliant project because it was explaining that this is a project working with um, kids in a safe house in India, girls who, um, whose families couldn't afford to feed them um, and who were being um, nurtured by um, an NGO um, and given, you know, opportunities to, to learn things that were going to help them overcome their deprivations. And... Um, I was like, wow, well, that's such a great project. Somebody's, somebody's going to do a brilliant job on that. You know, that's a, that's a great <laughs> opportunity for somebody right, right there. <laughs> and uh, my daughter was like, mm-hmm, yeah. You know, all the things that I had ever taught her just resonating. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm a self-employed business owner. You know, I stress if I take one day off, or, you know, I'll stagger into the dojo no matter what. Obviously not during COVID times, but completely different. But, um you know, as far as I was concerned, there was no way that I could take time out to go 5,000 miles across the world and to a place that I'd never been and knew nothing about. Um, and she was like, well, you obviously have to do it. You know, if, if they don't have a lot of, of people, that, you know, you, that's, you, know you, you could do that. So you need to do it. Um, and it was during the last year of her, uh, her high school stuff here, her A-levels. And I was like, but I'll be away during your exams. And obviously she was like, it doesn't matter. We, you know, we need to find solutions for those things. Um, so I went. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Um, so you you talked a little bit about the kind of being, I think, obsessed was the word you used with the ethical lessons of martial arts and the lessons for outside the dojo. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, and it's interesting because for me, this is where... Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about the, the differences between martial arts and self-protection. Um, and, you know, it's my belief that martial arts builds 
self-protection behaviors from the inside out um, over a considerable period of time, um, which is not the same as the kind of self-protection interventions that we might lead for uh, you know, people that we're not going to have the privilege of teaching and building a relationship with. Um, and so for my school here, I usually start children when they're four years old. I have taken them as young as three, but I usually start them at four. Um, and the school that I have will have them sort of, it runs in parallel with their normal education. And um, by the time they reach their black belt, then they're usually um, pretty much done with school and heading off to university. Um, and alongside that, I would expect them to become, you know, uh, disciplined, confident, proactive, uh, good at working in teams, good at leading, uh, good at mentoring, um, you know, coming out of the dojo with a solid knowledge of first aid and all those kind of practical skills. Um, and to understand, you know, the difference between when it's a good time to step forward and when it's a good time to step back. Um, and I truly believe that those are the lessons that they can learn from, um, you know, whether it's repetitions of hundreds of punches or whether it's um, losing at games, um, whether it's getting hit in the face, which is um, uh, definitely something that makes you confront um, a lot about yourself. So I just think that martial arts is an incredibly versatile um, pivot for teaching a lot of skills that have absolutely nothing to do with kicking and punching. So do you have a progression for these non-physical skills? Like, do you phase them into the teachings at certain points or do you just kind of allow the martial arts to teach them the way the martial arts teaches them? Um, I think it's, it's a blend. There's, I mean, I certainly, in, in the past, those lessons were left to chance. Right. right. In martial arts, it was right. like we know that it teaches these things, but it, it's sort of um, it's kind of done by osmosis. Um, I'm, a, I'm a former school teacher, and I think there's a great deal um, to be gained from clarity um, and looking at the lessons as they come up. Um, so, yeah, we do. Absolutely. I, with, the, with the younger children, I definitely structure it um, thematically and we consider um martial arts values and we talk about them um, and I've been influenced quite a lot there's um, obviously maybe 20 years ago in the states there was a, a, a really big um, revolution in um, that kind of uh, martial arts teaching so um, guys like Dave Tovar in Sacramento he's such a legend um, and um, Tom Kalos with his concepts of um, like um, tasks that you could get done so you know he'd produce stuff where you where kids had to record a thousand repetitions of one particular thing and then talk about how it made them feel to stick to that kind of um task or you know they, where they had to take on you know reading or or so I, mean, for, I always run a reading challenge i always run a nutrition challenge so you know kids have to eat something that they haven't previously eaten and that all comes back to sort of uh, discipline and good manners and, and so on so you might think that having parents getting really excited because they're kids prepared to try sweet corn um, has got nothing to do with karate, but I think it has everything to do with karate. That's fantastic. Um, so all right, just because I've never been exposed to, 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 to teaching like this, um, 
is this part of their their belt progression kind of like do you work it into literally into the 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 rank progression in the as you as you teach i have a brilliant uh, like that that's that, that's really made me laugh because now i have a kind of vision of lining the kids up at the grading saying right you know you have to eat the sweet corn and you have to eat the olive <laughs> and three different vegetables otherwise you don't get your green belt um no the, the the syllabus grading that i use is very specifically karate traditional karate based um and this tends to run alongside that um very much as um, um within each lesson we'll, we'll we'll talk about a theme or um, at the moment with my littlest ones, we've we've got an elf on the shelf because it's Christmas and with COVID restrictions in the dojo, anything that I can get them to do to make them smile when they're very restricted in, you know, standing on their spots and which is so hard for little ones in a freezing cold dojo because we're keeping it really ventilated and, you know, they're, mm. they're, they've been brilliant at adapting to that. So, you know, anything fun is great. So at the moment we have an elf on the shelf who's, you know, he's a black belt. He was a very naughty elf who studied martial arts for years. He learned lots of great lessons. Um, and uh, he, he, I have to hide him before class and then they guess where he is. And then he comes out with a message of how they can be really well behaved because the ways that he, he used to be naughty, but now he's learned. And really from that, they're just doing like, <laughs> yesterday we were doing, um, a scenario of you know you're playing with your lego and there's christmas visitors in the house and you you know you're being called downstairs to say goodbye and you don't really know them you don't really like them you're really busy in your game um and uh you know how to be a black belt in that situation you know suck it up go down be nice and how do we be nice what are the sorts of things that grown-ups want us to say um and that sort of thing do you use that verbiage, how to be a black belt in that situation? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's such an icon. Um, and so, uh, you know, we have, whether they're talking about black belt breathing or black belt attitude or that kind of thing. Um, and it's really good for the, for the young black belts as well, because they grow into that as role models. I mean, my, my best, um, you know, if, if, if parents come to, to the school and they're thinking about bringing their kids there, um, I just want to let them see my my late teens, that part where they peak just before they go to university. So they're usually assistant instructors at that point. Um, and they're, they're, you know, they're just brilliant. Um, they're fantastic at dealing with the children. They're fantastic at they have the confidence to deal with the parents. And, um, you know, I can point to them and say, you know, what would Billy do? What would Sophia do or whatever? And they're just like, OK, yeah, but those those are the role models that we're looking for here. So there's a layer of mentorship in there as well. Always, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, and I mean, there's that that's part of when they get to their black belt test. That you know, so we're talking about. So I'd say that I don't, I don't test them on those things um, in the in the normal run of syllabus work, but at black belt, then they do get tested on a, a lot kind of broader things. Um, so they they get questioned on mentorship and how to encourage and. Um, and support um, students and most of them by the time they get to that point will have spent some time you know coming in they they'll support the student with special needs um or um you know somebody whose family circumstances are difficult and they'll come in and you know make a bond with that student because really for, for teenagers those relationships can be the most significant you know they can be life-changing somebody that's willing to take an interest in them and encourage them and be positive um, and there's so much, obviously, inside of a martial art that 
there is to be positive about. Um, and it's really, so recently Gretchen Carlson, I don't know if you're aware of her, she does a, a brilliant podcast um, on sort of martial arts thoughts. And um, she did a really good one on um, mental health and martial arts and talked about the, you know, the, we all know that um, exercise is great for somebody suffering from anxiety or depression, provided, you know, once you get there, then you're going to feel a lot better afterwards um, most of the time. And we talk about that sort of rhythmic, repetitive movements that we often do, which can be really soothing, you know, like going for a run or swimming or, or whatever. But in the same, if you do kata, then you feel that you know, the movements themselves are powerful um, and it's kind of meditative and it's just really positive. So, you know, that the actual physicality of martial arts is inherently empowering, which is one of the things, obviously, that helps us with fair fights. Um, because while the girls that I work with are, you know, they love their Indian dance and that's fantastic, but it's also really good for them um, to kick and punch and, and move and dodge and all of those things are, you know, good for them as animals, good for us all as animals. So it, it definitely sounds to me like you're a fan of the traditional martial arts as a, as a vehicle for all of this stuff, which I am as well. Um, but but you alluded to the difference between martial arts and self-defense. You want to differentiate that out? Uh, well, yes, but we do need to, you know, finish sometime within the next four hours. because it's, <laughs> it's a huge topic. Um, so, OK, I think um, this is a really important debate. And uh, most of the people that I... Uh, you know, talk to in, in my network of people, they have it down, you know, they, um, I had a fan, I was privileged to have a fantastic um, discussion with Ian Abernethy about this, um, not very long ago. Um, uh, uh, is Ian somebody that you've come across before? Yeah, I know Ian, I'm, I'm planning on having him on at some point, I, I really like his work. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. Um, so obviously, he's, famous in in the world of karate but um but he's also very clear on um the divide between karate and self-defense and that's been really helpful for me because um i think it's dangerous and ethically wrong uh to teach karate as self-defense because although all the things that i've talked about building uh, confident um young people um allowing people to understand that their own power and you know just the basics of punching and kicking, that's great, but those are intrinsic benefits. And that's not teaching situational awareness. It's not, te well, we do absolutely 100% teach de-escalation. I teach de-escalation to four-year-olds. Um, and um, by the time they get to seven or eight, I teach them the vocabulary of de-escalation as well. You know, a kid will come to me, I had this fight in the playground, this kid, and I was like, okay, talk me back to the de-escalation phase. What happened before? And then this sort of stuff will come out. But <laughs> It's, um, it's, I think it's, it's criminal and dangerous um, to teach traditional karate and then tell people that, you're, that they have self-defense skills because they don't. Um, now, this was really thrown into um, sharp focus for me um, with my work um, in India because um, absolutely the, the, the original group of girls that I was working with were developing fantastic skills um, and the karate was being taught to a very high standard. Um, but 
I was very troubled by the nature of what you know comes under and I'm, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers here self-defense um, because you know we've all seen the very static very um, you know it's all kind of technique based instead of principle based it's it bears no relation to what actually happens in the street and the, the women in India are, are in the most vulnerable situation in the whole world you know and I would never want anybody to think that they had skills that they don't actually have um, and so this is something that I went into a really deep dive on um, and wanted to be able to adequately articulate um, the gap between karate and self-defense and I wanted to become an a, as expert as I could be um, in the field of um, self-protection I'm obviously quite clear on the kind of protection behaviors and then the the legally defined self-defense, the physical skills that you're allowed to use to defend yourself in a situation. Um, and that was when I came in contact with Jamie Club locally, um, who is um, obviously, um, you're familiar with his work, which is great. But for the sake of anybody who's not, Jamie is, um, again, lucky for me, he's a, he's a globally known trainer in the field of cross-training martial arts and in self-protection for children. Um, and initially I, I kind of, I heard him on Ian Abernethy's podcast. I'm a big podcast fan. And um, I was like, wow, that's what an interesting guy. I mean, he's slightly dissing on um, traditional karate, which made me sad. <laughs> uh, he's, I've, talked, I've talked him around a bit now. Uh, now he's got a lot more karate friends. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he had loads of karate friends. Everybody knows Jamie. Jamie's awesome. Jamie, uh, so, but Jamie had worked originally way back and trained with Jeff Thompson. Um, and has an impeccable um, pedigree of um, you know people that he knows, people that he's trained with, and he's and he's such an interesting guy. Uh, and I was kind of gobsmacked to find that he was really local. So um, you know he, he he lives maybe about forty minutes away from me. So um, I looked him up and and um, booked a session with him to work on some self defense pad work. And of course, it opened my eyes to a whole world of things that I really, really needed to know. Um, and then that was a, a, a rabbit hole that I fell into and I've been running around in ever since trying to, I feel like, um, so I've trained weekly with Jamie for, since then, which is you know, maybe like a year and a half. Um, and, you know, read everything that I can read. I learned about, you know, Rory Miller. I learned about Gavin DeBecker. I learned about all the things that people should know. Um, and I, you know, I said I'm a fan of podcasts. I feel like I've been to podcast university and I could take a degree in, in this <laughs> stuff now, um, which has been amazing and kind of reassuring and liberating because as somebody from a, quite an academic background, it's really nice to be able to study things and, um, you know, to draw your own conclusions and to compare and contrast. And um, it's interesting when people say things that are different. It's reassuring when they say things that are the same. And then, you know, with Jamie's help, we've been able to um, to trial and apply these things. So quite often we'll test drills in a session, then I'll take them out to my school and I'll spend a week working on them and come back to them and go, oh, this was really working, this was not so much, and they were relating to this and, and not so much to that. So we're kind of in this sort of experimentation hotbed, if you like, um, and looking at, you know, what works for a five-year-old, what works for an 11-year-old, um, and, you know, really kind of trying to think about what does a progressive self-protection syllabus look like um, across that, you know, um, preschool through to university sort of level? 
So, so could you give some examples of uh, kind of compare and contrast traditional martial arts with self-defense just for people who are unfamiliar? I love Jamie. He's great. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, there are people out there, I'm sure, that are unfamiliar with with the difference. So if you wouldn't mind, could you could you kind of compare and contrast just to give people kind of a mental picture of of what you're talking about, something you might drill in a martial arts setting that is martial arts, something you might drill mm-hmm. in a self-defense setting that is self-defense. Okay. Um, something that I would drill in a martial arts setting that's martial arts probably not really gets much more martial artsy than pure kata. Um, so it, we'd be doing you know, a repetition of a simple form um, and some of it's very esoteric you know you get very stylized movements that that look nothing like a fight would actually look um it's a very cleaned up version um there's the kind of you have your dramatic pauses in your stances which demonstrates that you understand where your weight should be at the time in that transition but it's a snapshot um it's not um it's not reality because you know um ian says there's only two things that are still in a fight uh, uh, people who've been knocked out and people who are about to be knocked out. Um, so, you know, that when, when we're looking at stances, we you might get, you know, my white belts are still going to learn their basic stances and they're going to get used to making those transitions, you know, show me your cat stance, show me your Zinkutzadach, um, all of these different things. Those are not things that they're going to be using um, if they get picked on in the playground at school. You know, hold up a second. Just wait there. I'm going to put my keyboard at you on. It's going to be awesome. You know? um, but then, you know, what you need to learn for self-defense, that, you know, that tiny percentage that is self-defense, that is the physical side of that, which, you know, sometimes we say it's 10%, sometimes we say it's 5%. I think everybody who knows about the field generally would say it, it forms less than 10% of the whole sphere of personal safety, self-protection. Um, you, you know, you need to learn to hit really, really hard. Um, you need to learn to push forward. You need to learn, you know, before that, you need to learn your fence. So you, you're going to work, you're going to learn about why you need to strike preemptively. You're going to learn how you strike preemptively. You're going to learn what to do if you haven't done that preemptive striking. You're going to learn how to recover from different positions. Um, and you're going to learn how to keep hitting until you can get away safely. You know, that's a very um, crude version of it but it, it is still you know I've recently been working on a syllabus um, for the um, trainers that I've been working with in India for the Red Brigade and um, really we sort of boiled it down to like 10 bullet points you know like if you have passed on these 10 things to your students then um, they're going to be a hell of a lot safer um, and there was a really really interesting debate on Randy King um, several months ago um, with Kaya Sadowski from Canada. Um, she's, um, she was, they, were, they were talking about, can self-defense be taught in a day? Um, and it was a, a fascinating, you know, the idea was if you had a day, what could you teach people that would leave them safer at the mm. end of it? Um, and for years, I would say, I don't like teaching self-defense courses in a day or in a few hours because People are going to learn a couple of gimmicks. They're going to feel safer. They're going to forget those gimmicks very quickly. It's not like when you train in martial arts and you really put it into your body and it will come out under pressure, you know, which we see when we pressure test through sparring and so on. 
that those behaviors with you know that groove repetition and um with the right kind of support you know it, it, i mean bringing it back to the little kids again it's the same as like I, when when they when they come in the first place i say i say to their mums you, you need them to build skills of self-sufficiency so that, that that work when you're not there you know, if your kid falls over in the playground and scrapes his knee then you're going to want um you're going to want him to be able to pick himself up and dust himself off and take some deep breaths and, and not need his mum um and so you know pressure testing starts like at that point um so yeah it's a it's a tiny percentage but it's um and it would be really boring you know you couldn't really have a school of self-defense that was just about hey we're going to do this this and you're going to have to branch out and then what happens is instead of being self-defense if you are teaching just that it tends to become something else like it will become a martial arts game always talks about that as well that that sometimes people end up kind of teaching it but then it 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 kind of develops roots and turns into uh you know uh, a, a different a different martial art because it leaves that whole concept of you know the 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 panic the flurry the the everything that's going on right there in the moment um and so it you know, if you look at the whole idea of asymmetric goals in a martial arts, um, you know, you learn things, you spar things, but when you stand opposite the other person, you both have the same goal, whether it's, you know, the, the drill is, you, it stops when somebody gets a knee on the ground or, it, you know, it, it's, you, you're playing for points or whatever, you, you're both there with an objective. Um, and then if you're, you know, out there defending yourself in the street, you want to get home safely and, and the other person wants to rob you, rape you, or, or you know, in some way cause you harm. So the, the fundamental and simplest difference between martial arts and self-defense is about it being a level playing field. Um, and again, to quote Ian, it's like in, a, in, in, in martial arts, you sort of martial artists can sit down at a chessboard to start to play their moves and, and, and the self-defense, um, you know, the, the, the attacker, the, the, the baddie, if you will, is going to flip the chessboard up and hit them over the head with it. Right. You know, that they don't, they don't have the same objective. Yeah. So I think for sure, I'm what I hear you saying, martial arts is great for one thing, right? If you were to do like a Venn diagram for those people that don't know what a Venn diagram mm -hmm. is, cause I got some special friends. It's the, it's the diagram with the two circles that partially <laughs> overlap. Um, and, and you would have self-defense in one circle and martial arts in another circle. There, there is overlap for sure. Um, yeah, I'm very excited you said that because I actually learned how to make a Venn diagram in Word documents last week, specifically so I could make that exact word, the, the exact Venn diagram you're talking about so I can put it in my blog and like exactly how much overlap I put in there. Um, <laughs> It's all part of a like adjusting the Venn diagram process. So I hundred percent agree with you. Yeah, for there sure. Is overlap. Yeah. And they're both good for different things. I, I I've worked a lot with Rich Dimitri, and he talks about a third category, which would be combatives, the military type, uh, you know, uh, yeah. systems. I guess. So you have martial yeah. arts, self defense, and combatives, and he always uses the metaphor of ping pong. Uh, tennis and badminton, right? Like, yeah, and table tennis. Yeah, sure. Table tennis, badminton. Yeah, I've heard him with that. And that, that, that and they're all completely, yeah, awesome. 
it's a really helpful way right, of thinking about right. it. it. So, uh, I, I am, I am a hundred percent in agreement with everything you've said so far, because I, I don't think if you're teaching, I mean, self-defense is so simple. You can't, unless you're just doing a seminar circuit all the time, you could never run a school of self-defense. And, and, no. and if you do, it, it becomes, like you said, it becomes a martial art. I, I, I've always been very suspect of people who are teaching, they have a self-defense school, right? And then vice versa, right? Yeah. Like I've always been I mean, very I mean, suspect of, of people who teach Taekwondo or something. And they say, this is self-defense class. And it's clearly just Taekwondo and someone's holding a gun and you do a disarm before you do your, you know, five, five move kata on their face. Mm-hmm. And you're probably going to disarm them right, with right, like a right. roundhouse kick. Um, and if you're just like, you, your brains would just be splattered everywhere. So yeah, um, not good. So it's, yeah. but it's got to be challenging. I mean, you're, 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 it sounds like you've really thought this through, but, but you're working with a very young demographic. Uh, how does, how do, do you find that to be challenging to be working with such young kids? I know when I have in the past, it's been like, you know, wrangling cats. <laughs> uh, it, it, it can be, um, but, um, no, they're they're awesome. Um, I mean, obviously, only a, only only a percentage of my client base is is, is as small as that, um, but they're 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 really fun. No, it's really. I think this is the best age for them to start to learn um, these things. Um, I, you know, at five years old, kids start to play unsupervised by adults, and that's a, a massive thing. And at that point, they need to learn that if somebody takes their toy how to deal with that situation they need to learn that somebody somebody learns how to push um which absolutely is a thing that happens at that age and they start to learn they have push and they're like hey this feels good you know so is if your kid's doing the pushing then uh, you need to uh, you know if you haven't seen that you don't know what that's happening that can kind of run quite a long way and then you'll get a call from school saying your kid did such and such and um, or if your kid's getting pushed then, you know, I, I'm the one that's going to teach them to, I'm with scenario training. We stand still, we look them in the eye and we say, leave me alone. Don't push me. Or I don't like that. We're teaching them in personal space. It, you know, I, when, when I sit down with my kids, I mean, the little ones, again, it's, they're still, they, they still struggle with their distancing in COVID. And I'm just like, I would just have a dose, you know, it, right now, they come running up and I'm like, <laughs> back off playground and they have to, <laughs> you know you need to be two meters away from me you know kids kids find it really hard to judge two meters at that age um this is why we don't have them crossing roads at that point you know they don't understand distancing but we're just you know reinforcing it this this is a generation of kids that are going to understand distancing you know better than any other it's going to be their superpower um they're going to be anxious as hell and you know in all sorts of other ways socially disadvantaged but you know they're, they're going to have their distancing down um so I love teaching them relevant skills. Um, I love teaching them to say, excuse me, um, I've lost my mum. This is her phone number. And they can recite, they get a badge for that when they can do it nicely. When we have to, we have to role play the whole scenario. Um, and, you know, these are, these are essential self-protection skills for, for kids of that age. And we're, you know, we're also building physical skills. We're running agility ladders and, and we're, um, you know, moving backwards safely. We start to build our kind of, 
tactical retreat and, and and that kind of thing and then they get a bit bigger you know the the best age for teaching cooper codes is like seven seven year olds absolutely love the cooper codes um and they really get it you know they really 100 percent get it um i love hearing them talk about so we talk about threat assessment and uh, you know we took you know so somebody's only really an established threat if they have uh, a proximity capability and intent right so so you'll get you you get a seven-year-old to explain that to you and you'll have it clearer than anything else because you know you, it could be that there's a super villain who's out to get you um but if he's in prison on neptune um then although he has intent and capability he doesn't have proximity so so he's not a threat <laughs> at, you know at that point in time um and it's, you know they get it they get it and they love it and it you know it makes them feel stronger i i did a lot i um, want to i want up doing yeah, a lot of games with the kids I, I i mean i wound up having a we would take a set mm -hmm. of boxing gloves i would take them to the playground because that's where most bullying goes down and i was also teaching in a in a school so we would go to the playground and i would have them play boxing glove tag they would have a bully with the gloves on and everybody else mm -hmm. had to run away or cover up or, you know, defend against the boxing gloves and they'd chase each other yeah. around the, the, the playground. That was the only, if I, if I didn't turn it into a game, I, I really struggled with teaching kids that young. Oh, well, come, come visit. We'll work on it. You'll, you'll love it. It's great. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I guess, um, you know, I think I'm lucky because I come from a school teaching background. Um, so I guess I've got a, a, a set of um, pedagogical um, approaches that can then be twisted for the mm -hmm. subject matter, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, for, for most things, if you if you if you regularly teach four year olds one type of thing, then it's easier necessarily if you're kind of in that mindset to teach a four year old something else. But I agree, they love the games and the games make so much, you know, so much impact on them and they're developing such important and relevant skills. Definitely. Well, so you're doing some pretty incredible work in India and Africa uh, on top of all of these other things, which I would love to get deep into with you, but I don't know if it's conducive on a podcast. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your work around the globe. Um, because you've mentioned it, but you haven't really gone into detail. What are you doing uh, in India and Africa? Okay, well, for a start, um, Fairfight is working in Africa, but that's not my, my side of it. So um, I definitely don't want anybody to... Sometimes I talk to people and they're like, oh, she does this. And I'm, <laughs> I'm just like, no, 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 I don't do that. And then I feel really bad for the people that are actually doing that. Um, so a fair fight is not my NGO. I, I, um, my role is project management in, in, in the India project. Um, so fair fight was started by a, a really cool um, pair of individuals, uh, Jeannie and Alex, and it was started in Zimbabwe about um, five years ago now. Um, and their idea was, hey, we know that um, karate is really great for empowerment um, and we have these um, girls that are, um, you know, in this school, which, which is for, you know, trying to try, trying to supply education to people who don't have the opportunity to have an education. Uh, let's give them some karate training alongside of that because it was sure as hell will be good for them. Um, which of course it was. 
And um, then the project expanded into India on a similar kind of basis. So the girls that I mentioned that lived in a safe house, um, which is run by um, Ashadia Foundation. Um, and these, this was like the original project that I went to had, uh, when I came into it, it was fragile, very fragile. Um, there had been some issues um, in communication between um, the karate school and the, um, the people that, who were looking after the, the girls. And there was also, you know, it wasn't working. And it was my job to go in and, and, and to see what needed to be done to help it work properly. And so we increased the amount of training that the girls were doing. Um, we um, split the group down. Um, so basically what was happening is that they all been taught in this massive group once a week mm. and, and nothing was getting done. And it was demotivating for the instructors and for the students because they didn't have that special relationship um, and involvement. And it was, you know, it, it was not enough of anything. And so, um, you know, doubling the hours, halving the group size kind of had exponential value in terms of what happened next. Um, so then, you know, so I, I visit twice a year to supervise what's going on and to bring training for the instructors on site. And um, self-defense was a, was a really important priority because, um, as I say, they were teaching the karate fantastically well, really good. Um, but I felt that there was a, a, a hole in the um, self-defense side of things that could, you know, they really wanted to teach self-defense to women because it's so much needed in the city. Um, and I, just for context, so Varanasi is, um, it's, it's a city on the Ganges in Uttar Pradesh. Uh, Uttar Pradesh has got a horrendous human rights record for, particularly for, for women. Uh, it is, um, it, you know, I've, I won't kind of go into it, it's, it's really grim, but it's a, it's a center for child trafficking, uh, sex trafficking, drug trafficking. Um, it's the kind of a key place it gets like 80 million Indian tourists every year because it's a holy city. Um, so even though the city itself only has a population of about 3 million, um, the number of people that come through the city, through the railway station particularly, um, is um, huge. And there's a, a massive um, setup of um, sort of prostitution and um, it, it just runs, you know, the police turn a blind eye to most of it. And, um, you know, the, the, it's got a huge homeless problem. There are, um, it, it's a very um, terrifying place in lots of ways. When I first got there, it was an assault on the senses. Look at Rory Miller's new stuff on living in the deep brain. And he talks about um, taking in the sights and sounds of your environment quite a lot. Um, and I was, um, I struggled. I struggled so much when I got there first. Um, and it took me three or four days before I was able to adequately um, kind of disentangle what noises were threats, what noises were not threats, because it's just such an incredible sensory overload. Uh, and now when I go back, it's, it's a relief because because I know I'm comfortable in the environment and I, I can I can I can adapt. I can switch much more quickly. Um, but to start off with, that was um, it, it was a very um, challenging transition to make um, and, and you know especially you, you know you've been to um, some pretty challenging environments so you know when you come out of your first world environment and you're surrounded by um, 
creatures that are underfed uh, of you know or human and um, canine variety or it, it, it and the streets are filthy um, and everything you touch is likely <laughs> to put you in hospital and um, no really I was I was, I'm, I'm very proud as a team leader I've now um, successfully two, at least two of my projects nobody has had to have medical treatment um, and that was you know that, that was a first because previous project leaders had all kind of ended. like when I first got there one of the reasons it was so scary was that um, the, 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 the then project manager um, and the other person on the project had already gone down sick um, and we, so we arrived at the airport which is like two hours out of the city um, and we were expecting to be met by people that we had spoken to before um, but we weren't there was a guy um, who didn't speak any English with a piece of paper which said fair fight on it so we followed him and I'm telling you we followed him I had no connection on my mobile phone at all it it, it, it took like three hours for it to find a network so I got into a car with a guy who on the basis of a piece of paper 5,000 I've never felt further from home 5,000 miles from home and then we bowled onto the craziest streets you've ever seen there's cattle everywhere. There's people, a whole families of six riding on one motorcycle. There's noise, the, the horns, the rituals, the, the insanity all just like hits you. And you're just like, <laughs> what the fuck? I, it's funny. I mean, if people haven't I, been to I the third like, world, you, you oh just, man. you can't, there's no frame of reference for it, right? Like I, I used to say to my wife when we were in South America, this is the chaos theory at work. You, you know, you, you want to you want to know what the chaos theory looks mm. like in a living, breathing city. This is it. I mean, no one follows any rules. There's people standing in the streets at every stoplight. People come up and try to sell you something. Mm. You know, it, it's yeah, it's just an it's, oh, it's an insane experience. The first time you experience it, I, I'm, I, I feel you as you describe it. I, I can feel it. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, and I had, you know, I, I went, you know, as I say, it was so out of my comfort zone. Yeah, it, it was, uh, I'd, n I'd never, you know, I, I had never kind of even intended to go to India. I have Indian friends that say, if you went to India, why didn't you go somewhere <laughs> nice? I mean, not that Varanasi doesn't have its plus points, but, but I mean, it, it was just like, what, if you're going anywhere, what, go there, what, what, what were you, you know, what were you doing? You know, what you think? you never realize how much you'd miss a pavement um, or, you know, kids being carried in push chairs, just the whole health and safety regulations things. You just think that people over here get stressed if their car seat has lost its kite mark or something. And you just like, uh, when you're watching somebody slinging a, a baby across the front of a motorbike as everybody else balances on behind, you're just like, Oh my God, you just, you know, and it's not the it's it's because it's so relentless. Like a few seconds of it is overwhelming, but it's and there's and there's so and many not. food sanitation issues. Like I was a, I was a medical lab technician for a while yeah. towards the end of my yeah. Navy career, and mm -hmm. that that was one of the things where you you walk around and you're like, oh my god, they're eating that. Like, how can you eat that? Like, did you not see the hands mm -hmm. of the person that just served that food mm -hmm. to you? Like. <laughs> 100 percent yeah 
I was so strict with my team. Like before we went out, I'm like, now you're going to practice being in the shower without swallowing any water. You had no idea how difficult that is to shower without swallowing water until you eat. I was like, you guys, you're going to train for this. You are going to train for this. <laughs> Last year, I took um, oh God, a, a, an amazing Olympic athlete uh, called Alton Brown, who's hoping to represent um, um, Jamaica in the Olympics when, um, when and if they happen. Uh, and he is uh, he's a guy with a heart of gold. I mean, seriously, he's the kind of guy who all right, his his brother was killed in a knife attack um, in London a few, uh, maybe three or four years ago. And, and Alton is now working with um, teenagers um, and or, or like people who get drawn into knife crime. And he, he's I mean, like yourself, he's a Christian and he he just has a heart of gold, um, a, a most incredible man. So. Um, so, yeah, he, I, he came to inspire the, the girls and um, and their trainers. And it was like, you know, nobody in the world of karate at his kind of level. You know, he's been a junior world champion. He's been a European gold medalist. He's, he's got an incredible competition pedigree, um, which they were so excited about. And he's just a he's, you know, fantastic human being, lovely man. Um, so, um, yeah. Hate dirt, <laughs> hate dirt. So for him, for, for him to be, and, and I was also like such a responsibility. I'm like, this guy's, you know, going to be genetic. <laughs> if he catches dysentery here, which is, you know, hugely likely, I'm going to feel responsible for that ongoing. You know, he, he suffers from lupus, and it's it just like, it was just like I, I'm going to surround this guy in Michael Jackson's his sterile bubble. I'm going to transport him around, and it was great. We got him in and out. He came in, he stayed a few days. He did his um, um, seminars, which were fantastic, and uh, inspired all of them, which was brilliant. And and then we got him out safely before he got sick, so that was good. But um, so the, was, uh, like it's, it's hilarious listening to you speak. Uh, uh, so the thing that that really got to me was not the shower but brushing your teeth right you can't you can't swallow the oh, water God. when you're brushing your teeth mm -hmm. uh no you see i i used yeah, boiled water to brush to. my teeth with so uh, like uh, so uh, yeah yeah but i but then so then it was like it wasn't so much high stakes for for that because like because i had my like my special water that if i did swallow any of it that was going to be okay but uh, yeah, honestly, the extremes that you go to, and like, I just feel like it was good pre-COVID training as well because you know you touch anything, and you're like, well, that hand is basically either I have to chop it off or I just need to not touch myself with this hand until I've had an opportunity of like scrubbing it with. Well, right, right. You, there's all these weird traditions in other parts of the world, like you, you, you know, you wipe with one hand and you shake with the other, right? Which on the surface for us as Americans who constantly have hot running water and we wash our hands as much as we want, it just sounds crazy. But like in situations like that, it matters, right? Like don't touch me with that hand. <laughs> totally makes sense. Yeah. And like you, it, the streets right. are yeah. literally yeah. paved with shit. Like absolutely everything. Everything craps in the street. So why wouldn't you take your shoes off when you go into a shop? You know, you absolutely you have to take your shoes off when you go into a shop <laughs> because otherwise you're just going to be traipsing in all that disgusting dirt with you. So yeah, you, you, that's 
imagine explaining that to, to the person here. Oh, you're just going to pop into the supermarket and take your shoes off. Like, what? Uh, okay, so we digress. Sorry, sorry. Uh, a little, a little third world digression. We're going to get into some deep stuff here and talk about uh, a pretty contentious subject that tends to get people pretty wound up, and that's the white savior complex and third world outreaches like yours. Okay, um, cool. So um, I project manage for Fair Fight, which is an NGO based out of the Netherlands. um, And um, yeah, so the white savior complex is something that um, we have to confront all the time. And as a volunteer, when I first started with Fair Fight, um, we were set some pretty tight um, rules and cultural sensitivity training um, about that. Um, uh, you know, I'm super conscious of the fact that I'm a privileged white woman um, getting stuff done in India, partly because of white privilege. Um, and it's um, it's kind of a, uh, it's an unpleasant flavor that um, infuses a huge amount of the work that I'm that I'm doing there so uh, yeah it's I mean I'm aware that you I mean obviously you've also worked in developing countries um what was your feeling about it did people come to you and say well you know you shouldn't be here um this is cultural oppression or anything like that what 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 was your experience absolutely I I mean I got I got cornered in a stairwell this is a true story I got cornered in a stairwell by an old man who told me literally I'm quoting he was like gringo go home I know you're just here to take our women and our jobs we don't uh, want you wow. country wow that's pretty full on <laughs> I mean part, part of the trouble that I um, struggle with in India is is really not that people don't want us although that that, that does come in in some aspects um but um what's unpleasant in some ways is that um we have you know, white privilege has never been clear. Some some things I can only get done because I am white, um, and um, you know that just wouldn't be possible um, if I if I didn't have that. Um, if I you know, I, I have a lot of um, it's currency. It really is currency, and that to me is very disturbing because um, I I work on a very much um, respect is earned. That one of the troubles that I have in martial arts is that I'm quite fundamentally anti hierarchy. So um, that's been a problem for me on and off in a very hierarchical system like karate is. Um, so when it comes down to it and people are being deferential because of, you know, things that have nothing to do with me. Right. Right. If people don't know me and they're, and they're automatically, you know, uh, very respectful, then that, um, that that's disturbing. Um so yeah it's but i mean here we go already i'm kind of like oh poor me um it's so disturbing when people are respectful to me that's just so fucked up on so many levels um so it's it's just something that you have to be continually aware of i mean my my feeling is i'm working alongside women who've asked for support and i'm trying to support them in ways that they want and i'm trying to be always very conscious of um what they're you know making sure that agency is in the right place and that um we're responding to coming alongside and supporting with um hopefully with things that 
that they, that they don't themselves have access to and that they want and need. Um, and so that what I'm trying to do is to be part of the momentum for change in India um, in a helpful way. Um, but, you know, it is an absolute minefield all the time. Definitely. And there's, um, I'm, there's a huge amount of inertia to overcome. I mean, culturally, it, 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 it's, it was fascinating to me, I mean, doing the trafficking piece that, and we talked this about mm. this a little bit, but that the family members are often the, the, the actors, the, the ones that push their kids into it, right? Like, yeah. uh, so you want to talk about kind of overcoming the inertia in a sensitive, culturally sensitive way and what that looks like? So when you say inertia, um, um, can you give me a little bit more about exactly what you mean with that? So I make sure that I'm answering in the right way. Sure. It, just people don't want to move from the spot that they're at, right? Like y you see, you know, this is the way it's always been done. So why yeah. change it type? It's, it's kind of like a sticking point, right? And so, so in, in inertia would just be overcoming that sticking point and getting people to understand that there's value in, in what you're doing. Uh, yeah, I get you. We, we get that on lots of different levels, actually. That's a really interesting um, way of thinking about it. Um, so we meet it at a family level. Um, the girls that I work with in the safe house, um, we have a continual problem that they get to a marriageable age and the parents want to pull them out and, um, take them for arranged marriages and we've lost a few girls that way you know several girls that way um and the difficulty is then convincing the families that actually it's better to leave the girls in education to allow them to finish their education um and potentially to go on to a degree level um and that's incredibly difficult to um to achieve um one of the other ngos that um that we work with at project mala They've had a lot more success at that higher level um, education, but it's still, I mean, for them, the, they try to start tackling gender inequality um, at sort of from, from three-year-olds upwards. Um, a school that I visited, um, they have a, they're running a preschool for girls because basically uh, girls are understimulated from birth. The boys get the better nutrition. They're the ones that are allowed to go out to market with, their dad the, the, the girls are kept at home um and you know i've seen the habitations these are sort of kind of more huts than houses and um they they don't even speak hindi they speak a kind of a hindi dialect so the girls are very restricted in their life experiences and, and this shows then in, in the education system that this this project um is working to um try and bring capable children out of the um the the villages and um, to give them a, a decent education. And they, they've had brilliant, they've been working there for 30 years now. They've had some, um, some um, kids go on through university and even on into a, a PhD program, which is incredible. But the gender inequality is desperate because the girls are behind all the way through. Um, and, you know, they managed to try and recruit 50-50 up until about age nine or 10. And then after that, uh, the dropout rate for girls is huge. And they're still expected, like, if when they get them to boarding, it's a lot better. But um, while they're still traveling to school every day, 
girls are expected to do so much more housework um, so that the opportunities to do homework are just massively reduced um, and you know boys just shoot along ahead so not only are the girls brains underdeveloped and undernourished by the time they start education they're just continually disadvantaged all the way through um, and just overcoming that concept that um, like so one of the girls that um, that I'm familiar with um, it's just a constant battle with the family to allow her to continue in education despite how desperate she is to be there so so that's one example it's, I think. it's interesting you you said when when the girls are of a marriageable age they get pulled out of the home i read a, a crazy statistic uh i believe it was in national geographic uh there's a huge financial motivation for marrying your daughters in india statistically if Indian brides were to inject all of the gold that they've received in dowries back into the world economy. There's enough gold there to literally upset the world economy. Um, And, and, and so these families, there's, it's more than just, there's, there's a caste system that, that exists with gender caste, you know, and women being considered below men. But there's also a tremendous mm-hmm. financial motivation to marry your daughter off to somebody who's going to give you a big bucket of gold for your kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you don't then have to support her either because, you know, mouths, uh, most of the, the girls that I work with, um, you know, it's these families are, 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 are living an absolute subsistence, subsistence living. So having a, a, an extra child to feed, an extra mouth to feed, um, even if they're working within the family, is is a massive consideration. So why would you continue to support your daughter um, when you know you could marry her off and then she's somebody else's problem? Um, so you know that that's that, that's a, a massive problem for sure. So so right there you have three points of of inertia, right? Three sticking points, if you will, where you have a gender caste system, you have this this need by these poverty stricken families, a to not have to support their daughters anymore who are looked on as as lesser than their male counterparts. And also B to receive the dowry that they're going to receive for mailing, marrying their daughters off. Yeah. Um, And all of those things are um, in some ways hard for us to get our heads around, but there's such a reality for the day to day existence. I mean, this links in some ways to, and some of the other stuff that um, we were planning to talk about when we when we when we think about this, when we talk about the sort of the different types of outreach that we're doing, um, one of the things that we're doing is trying to support instructors who are themselves working inside the community. Um, and um, one of our instructors was telling me just a few weeks ago um, how she you know she was we, we try to get them to to share their experiences with us because they're carrying you know this massive burden of of, of um, kind of information and without really a, a system to be able to vent and ground themselves and the, she was saying this girl had come to one of their um, self-defense days and um, you know they'd gone through all the um, techniques that they were they were doing and talked to them about their situational awareness and all of this stuff uh, but during the break the, the, the girl had said she was 19 years old and she said um, she w- was really glad to do this stuff and that she'd been through a horrendous um, time. She'd been heavily abused. Um, she, she basically, she had been married, um, she'd been married off into an arranged marriage 
the guy had lied completely about what was going to happen to her um, the the very day that um, she got to her new place uh, she was told that she was going to be making bricks now this girl had never you know she, she she'd never been involved in that kind of manual labor in that way and um, she was upset about it and she didn't want to make bricks you know she's 18 years old um, she's you know just in a completely new place with everyone around her that she, you know, nobody she doesn't know anybody she doesn't you know, she's completely on her own really um she refused to make bricks the guy beat her this just went on and on the abuse was getting worse and worse and eventually she um managed to persuade her family to take her back um but you know that was a massive shame um it was a huge humiliation for the family they as you know that a failed marriages uh, carry such stigma um for her and and for the family and obviously financially it's disastrous um and it was a it was a, a real struggle for her to get her family to take her back and if you kind of think about that in terms of you know your daughter or my daughter or anybody else you just like you know that that, that 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 can be regarded as the norm really shows us that we've got quite a lot to do in that in that area that there's there's your inertia it's actually better to leave her in that abusive relationship than have to face up to consequences of taking her back again yeah that would be a, a fourth point right I, and and the fact that the guy married her just to use her as slave labor basically i mean that's that's mm -hmm. hard for westerners to wrap their brain around that, that something like that actually happens it's not a it's not a love marriage it's not a fairy tale rescue yeah. you know <laughs> we have all these like and it's not an sorry uh, you know, it's fine. You're saying it's not a love marriage. It's not a fairy tale rescue, but it's also, it's not even unusual. This is just, this is just everyday life. If you are um, a young Indian woman with with very little money, you know, it, the access to education is so restricted. Your your the potential that you have is so much more um, kind of culturally um, limited, I guess. So. You know, to, to see these girls, you know, for, for, for my karate girls, to see them standing strong and being assertive and, you know, not being pushed around is is huge, particularly when I've seen how they've kind of, um, how they've changed over the years. That That's an, an amazing thing. But um, it's just so tiny. You know, I was listening to your talk with Debbie Stephen and thinking about how powerful she is in challenging the, the patriarchy and she's got you know she seems to have a huge capacity for taking on uh, ambitious um world-changing projects and i kind of think about the sort of working away in this little niche in this little area and you just kind of think you just have to kind of focus on one person at a time because the whole scale of it is so daunting mm. it is it is yeah I, there was a point where if you listen to that podcast she asked me did i ever feel overwhelmed and i i I confessed to the fact that, yeah, I mean, it's you, for me, the, 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 the nightmare, literal nightmare that I had was the tsunami in that hit, uh, I think it was Indonesia a few years ago. It, there was those, the, the images of the, of the water kind of pulling out and then piling up and coming back. And, and, and you look at, at uh these situations and it's it's so huge
<clears throat> and yeah, she's doing incredible work, but it, it, I really part of the, the, the goal of the podcast, if you will. Right. I think I believe there are good people out there that are not getting the attention they should like yourself, right? Like if you watch pot or listen to podcasts in this kind of arena, this has turned into a self-defense and wellness podcast without my wanting it to. Um, it's the same 10 people, right? All the time you get Blower and you get Larkin and you get, you know, the same list. You can just go down the list of people. And I also believe that there's probably good people out there who will hear this information and answer the call. Be like, oh, wow, I didn't even know I could do that. I didn't even know I could make that difference. If you're doing it, if Debbie is doing it, you know, like I'm going to do it too, right? There's an allowing. That's what Jeff Thompson calls it. There's an allowing when someone else steps out into an arena where it kind of opens the door for others to do the same. Yeah, I think that's very interesting, particularly it also links back to something I feel very passionately about, which is role models. So, you know, you, you, when you see somebody doing something that you feel that you could potentially get involved with, um, then, you know, for women in martial arts, having female role models is incredibly important. Um, when I travel to India, um, it's incredibly important to take, you know, to have also Indian women who are, you know, in that same position so that the girls can, uh, every, every time we go, um, uh, the roles in the team are very tight. So again, part of the not being voluntourism is that we don't take any, you know, no one rides for free. Um, everybody that is um, on, a far, on a fair fight project is there with a specific role to play. Um, and um, I have on, on, on my team often, um, I will take a young female martial artist, um, partly, you know, sometimes um, it will be for making sure that they're recording reporting or helping with um, um, analysis interviews or, or whatever. But there's a, there's a massive value in having somebody similar age to the girls like last October when I went, I was lucky to have um, Nivedita Sarveswaran. I can't say her name very well, which is shocking. Um, <laughs> it, um, she's um, of Sri Lankan heritage and she's a, a, a kick-ass PhD um, scientist, a biochem at Cambridge. Um, and uh, it was phenomenal for my girls to see um, someone, you know, uh, small and deadly. I mean, she you know, super bright, um, uh, and um, fantastically good at karate, and they 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 were really they were much more excited to work with her in their karate. I mean, they we, we have fun. We have so much fun with with me. They with we have our set things we like to do. They love doing the macarena for no apparent <laughs> reason. But um, it, but they don't they don't really come racing up to me and say I say yeah um diddy diddy fight me because you know I'm twice their size. I'm I'm giant even by UK standards. So um, to have somebody um, of short stature of uh, Asian descent um, to play with, really to play with, it was um, was really inspiring for my girls. And uh, you know, having relatable role models is such an important thing um, 
for for all of us i think um you know it's that's one of the big reasons i'm into positive discrimination um because you can't really get change without it what is positive discrimination describe that for me Oh, well, that's not, <laughs> I love it how you open this kind of like, well, let's go down into this. This is a, another five series podcast. Um, to me, positive discrimination is um, choosing um, people to fulfill that role model um, status or to try and make your organization more inclusive um, by trying to pick people that will be able to do your job for you, but that don't fit the mold that you've always used. Um, so, I mean, in football here, there was, um, um, you know, they had loads and loads of black players, but no black managers. Um, and they tried to push towards a little bit like um, in the States, I think you had the Rooney rule, um, which was about trying to ensure that you at least interview relevant candidates. It's an absolute minefield. There was a problem in Dutch universities last year. I don't know if it's still ongoing, where um, they were trying to make it compulsory to have um, women on the shortlist for all of the high level jobs. Um, or I think it might even have been all women shortlists, which I can see why that would be contentious. Um, and, you know, people come back with surely the, the right thing to do is to have the best person for the job. To which you would say, but if the best person for the job is the best person because they've had a privileged education um, and access to all that they need to be successful, um, then that's not necessarily the case. I mean, part of my work in um, British education has been um, in, to be a premium coordinator, which is to try and look at levelling the playing field for disadvantaged students. So students that have been through the care system or come from um, very poor backgrounds or have um, English as a second language, there are certain markers that we have that we know that these students are disadvantaged before they set foot into the classroom. And often, you know, um, particularly for people from poorer families, um, ongoing, you know, they, they won't have the study space, they don't have the facilities at home, they don't have the necessarily um, the ability to be supported by their parents because their parents might not have a positive experience of education or they um, um, might not have the time because they're working so many jobs. Um, so for that, you kind of have to go, all right, well, it isn't a level playing field. It's never been a level playing field. How do we look towards a better future? Well, sometimes it's by giving a leg up to those who have potential to do better that haven't had the best start. And so for me, positive discrimination is about, I mean, Oxford and Cambridge have this all the time. You know, that they're, they're in, a, you know, in this country, there's about 5% of people are educated at um, private schools and they make up a roughly 45% of the population of Oxford and Cambridge wow. universities. So, and those are, and those are figures that, um, those are not necessarily the most up-to-date figures, and it's been slightly better at Cambridge than at Oxford um, over the last few years, but I mean, it's a, it's a substantial percentage. And then if you go on to look at who's in government, um, and you analyse how many people um, in our um, kind of, in, in, in the British administration at the moment, how many people went through um, private schools as opposed to the state schools, um, it's a staggering percentage. And then you go, well, okay, these people might have been more successful in their academic career, but when you have them making decisions on behalf of people whose experience that they can't relate to, then 
that's a significant issue, right? Well, right. I mean, if you want a, a, a jury of your peers, so to speak, in that kind of environment, it's never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but, but the problem is people don't know what they don't know. And um, so people are making decisions from a position of ignorance because they think they have an idea of what it's like to have, you know, for example, um, benefits cuts and that kind of thing. I think, you know, if all politicians had to spend two months feeding their family on what is universal credit, um, then they would be uh, a little bit more flexible in the, the laws that they pass. But then I'm talking to somebody based in the States where there isn't even that basic level of social security, is there? And, and we at least have a health service. Um, so it's terrifying how dangerous it is to be poor in America. For sure. For sure. That's a that's a that's a whole nother podcast that we would we, we should have somebody on from the states to talk about. I think I, I, I think when I hear you speak, I, I think of uh, there was like what they called the Black Panther effect, right? Or for little girls, the Wonder mm. Woman effect. When 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 those movies came yeah. out, those demographics finally had a specific a role model that was specific to their culture and their you know demographic, and and it was incredibly empowering. Um, a friend of mine, when when Chadwick died. Uh, for those of you, we're not like close or anything. The actor that played uh, Black Panther. <laughs> but when he died, uh, a friend of mine shared a picture of his son just sitting on the floor in his Black Panther costume with the toys, just weeping, right? Just like bawling his eyes out. Because for him, that was the only hero that he had, right? He, uh, and And so... It, it's an incredible thing to have a specific role model that's kind of couture to you and your culture. And even like you said, even your size, right? It's, I've always been a, a, a small guy. I, I, you know, I'm six foot and I weigh 170 probably. I'm not huge. And I've always struggled mm -hmm. with, you know, looking up to the Schwarzeneggers of the world. You know, it, you just can't identify with a guy who has a 60-inch chest, right? It's, it's, that'll never be me, no matter how many weights I lift, no matter how yeah. much steroids I do. You know, it, it's not – that's not me. I can't I, – there's a part of my psyche that can't connect to him as a role model. Um. Yeah, and and absolutely. you know people that have never, when you look at like the pantheon of white male role models, I mean you got a you have a virtual spectrum of guys to choose from, right? You got tech billionaires and weightlifting champions and mm -hmm. martial artists, and like, and then you flip it, and, and for African Americans, let's say, I mean you. You got what, a, a dozen people maybe. That's if you include Barack Obama, right? Like, which is just insane. And and I think that's there's such a point of disconnect there for people. Uh, like you said, you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, over here, there was fury recently because the popular supermarket uh, used a black family in their Christmas advertising um, because, uh, you know, people were hugely offended by the fact that the family didn't look like them. You're just like, what the hell? This is one of a series of adverts. Um, there are plenty of white people featuring in these. In fact, there, some people said they were like, you know, that another supermarket was running a, um, uh, their Christmas campaign with animated vegetables and people felt less offended, like they could relate more to Kevin the Carrot than they could to this black family. And they were like kicking off about having a black family because they did, they felt that they were being threatened by this. And this is just, you know, this is kind of on the level of what we're really dealing it, with. Yeah, here. it's super um, ingrained. Speaking of inertia, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, and then obviously this then informs pretty much everything that we have to do. Um, and um, you, I would never say, so I'm not going to do the work um, because it's inappropriate for me to do the work because I'm, you know, I'm a privileged white person and therefore I, I can't do this work because, you know, it's not like there's a scrum of people elbowing me out the way that are, you know, the right, um, you know, have the right face to be the perfect role model for, for these girls. But also the way, I feel like the way that we're doing the work is to raise up um, and support those inside the community um, that have the potential to change their own society. So it's not about us telling them what to do. It's about, but, but even within that, you know, this most recent project that I've been working with, the, the instructors are young. They are conditioned to be respectful to me because I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm a white European and trying, you know, even, like the, the naming so right from the very beginning I had to say please you have to stop calling me ma'am it's you know it's it's an Indian thing that you know if they are being or, you know people will meet you and generally they're, they're going to call you ma'am um, instead of by your name or, or whatever and it's always a relief to me when we can get past that because I don't want somebody to respect me for you know for my position or for my color uh, if we get along well um, and we can work together, then that should be sort of it should be irrelevant. So working with the translator it was sort of kind of very early on, try to break down that wall and say, no, you don't have to. I'm respecting you. you, you I'm respecting you. You're an activist. You're an agricultural worker. You're a student. You're living in danger for the work that you're doing. Um, I'm just popping up on Zoom to try and give you some support in the incredible work that you're doing. So can we just look at this power dynamic and say, I'm, I'm going, wh whatever you need, I, I will try and serve you because that's um, a privilege to, to try and help you. And, you know, you've asked me for help and that's where I want to be. So, you know, uh, rapidly now we're at the point where the girls will call me Didi instead, of, which means big sister, um, like my um, karate girls do, um, which is great and, and feels much more comfortable um, and you know, we're always trying to build in that sort of well-being and um, kind of, uh, you know, the, 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 the respectful check-in of, of what their life is like um, and how they're doing, because there's just too much of kind of, to start off with, I was saying, you know, what, what's going to be useful to you and anything, anything you can teach us will be useful. I'm like, well, you know, you've been doing this for a while and you have some skills. Let's not just kind of put that all to one side. 
let's kind of try and be honest about where we are and really try and build a connection. Um, so that's that's always a challenge because you know that there is there are the big cultural barriers there. So then being able to relax and say, actually, you know, I had a shit week and I don't really feel like doing this, but you know, just because there's kind of kind of arm wrestled into being uh, perpetually grateful um, for me actually being bothered to talk to them, which is great. Mm, wow. Well, there's a, so there's a myriad of challenges that are kind of tied into this one route of the, the, I mean, if, if I could sum it up, the lack of, of cultural empathy for, for the, the demographic that you're trying to serve uh, it. And we've talked about how that's kind of daunting to even look at and, and you're doing some incredible work. Uh, so let's just take a second to kind of focus on the positive and let's, let's, let's talk about some of the training that's taking place and some of the difference that's being made in spite of all these different points of inertia. Sure. Um, where would you like to <laughs> well, start? Well, I mean, just tell me, tell, tell, tell the listeners. I mean, I know we've talked offline, but tell the listeners the, the, the training yeah. that's happening and, and the number of people that are being affected, if you will, and, and, and the difference that it's making. Okay. So um, I think hopefully if people have listened to the first part, they'll know a little bit about the karate work that, that Tim talked about before. Um, and that's a small set of girls that we've been working with um, for a longer period of time. And then more recently, um, this project that um, I have been working with, which is the Purely Self-Defense Project, and that's just, it's it's so surreal. It's so surreal. I, I think I did mention that, you know, we're trying to do it over Zoom and we've got all sorts of, um, you know, tech and translation and all sorts of other barriers that, that are there. Um, and coming back to the main topic of what we're thinking about today, which is that power dynamic, trying to establish what the instructors already know and what is going to help them the best um, has been quite a major challenge through those technological and translation linguistic obstacles. Um, so in some ways, what I've been working on is a sort of a trial and error thing to see um, what really, you know, you can they're, they're polite about everything that I try and teach them. However, um, badly, I, I've managed to do it over Zoom or, or whatever. But some things you can really see that they you know, as a as a teacher, you can see when somebody lights up and they go, "Yeah, I that I get that. I, I want more of that." Um, so that's kind of really what I look out for, and then try and go down that um, kind of pursue that line um, as much as I can, um, and at the same time, get getting a sense by the way that they move and the way that they talk and you know, the, the, the questions that they answer, which they do more so now. So trying to get them to interact more with the training instead of just being you know um, absorbing anything that I say um, to question and to challenge and all of these things trying to build those relationships which for me are about peer relationships because like I say when you say that I'm doing incredible I'm, I'm really not doing incredible work what I'm doing is um, I'm looking at these women who are young women going out there trying to teach 
when they're when they're kind of on a roll that they're, they're teaching like 40 women a day in the poorest and most vulnerable communities um in one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a woman so you know and they're working with children and they're working with domestic violence victims and um of which there are far too many um and at the same time then they're campaigning they've got women that are being threatened so basically it's very difficult to get rape convictions so they support women who um, have been raped and acid attacks and this acid attack is a massive problem in the area as well you know she turns you down then you throw acid in her face and ruin her looks for everybody else that's um, unfortunately um, a significant problem for, for across this area and so in terms of the pursuit of justice these girls have kind of made that decision that even though it's dangerous and even though it's often futile um, they are finding the energy to keep fighting these um, very important battles um, and trying to secure prosecutions um, despite you know how difficult that is when you're a low caste um, or, or um, a poor woman so um, I mean their, their work you know, that that really is what's incredible but then part of the reason that i wanted to get pam involved with it as well so i know um some of us will be familiar with pam armitage is because i don't believe it's possible for any young woman to do the work that they're doing without some kind of um emotional support as well because they've all um been through a lot um and they're really tackling people that have also been through some extreme and difficult situations so to try and have a, a, a reflective and supportive system built in that's one of the other things that we're really trying to establish is to help set up a more trauma-informed approach from our end as well as within the group for the women themselves um, because they kind of just expect to just take it on the chin they're just so incredibly stoical um, you know this is just what we do and we just keep going and I think that that has to be time limited I don't think anybody can keep doing that without burning out for sure so just describe the training path a little bit in case people pick up with part two and don't listen to part one you you're jumping on zoom and you're training trainers who then go out into the community and train the community. You said up to 40 women a day in one of the worst areas of the world for rape. Is that correct? Just so people have like a general understanding of how the flow works. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, it sort of evolved. Um, initially what happened was, um, you know, it was, through social media, I was following um, these guys because I could see that they were working in the same area as I was, and it was, you know, with, with sort of similar similar goals, and um, that they had quite a, a, a well-established network. And I was interested by what they were doing, and we've had a lot of um, success with pairing up with different organizations and sharing experience. Um, so I wanted to uh, connect with them and and to have a chat and um it's, it seems that like there, there's a two main areas that they've been working in and one of them is varanasi which is obviously where i've been working um and so it seems uh, like a good idea to talk about you know what, what their work was and if there was anything that i could do because you know outside of the pandemic 
I visit a couple of times a year um, and uh, have good relationships with the people there on the ground. So it seemed like if it was going to be a positive connection, then it would be worth um, you know, kind of uh, introducing ourselves and, and seeing. So anyway, so we, you know, we, we, they were very um, positive about that. We had a Zoom, I met all of the, I really liked the, the vibe because it, it, the women had so much agency and um, the whole, you know, the, the, the scale of what they're trying to do is, is so huge. Um, and I'm, I was kind of, from there, the, the, the girl that had been mostly um, instrumental in the conversations that I'd had that was really keen, clearly really keen to learn um, and felt that she wanted to develop herself. And she'd been following my stuff as well. So I think she had seen that she liked what I was doing and I seen that I liked what they were doing. And so it was kind of a, well, let's make a connection. But then we didn't want to wait until... Um, I don't know when I'm next going to get to Varanasi because it's all kind of vaccine and travel dependent. Um, so we just thought we'd start with some soft skills um, through um, through Zoom and see where it took us. And, you know, we're now sort of four months into quite a complex program and making our own syllabus and um, really kind of trying to get that whole overview of what self-defense means for a woman in India, well, in Uttar Pradesh particularly, um, and what are the, what scenarios are going to be, we're trying to work on building scenario training, we're trying to work on um, those kind of context-specific um, threat assessment skills and so on. Um, so really, I feel like we're trying to be informed by what's been successful elsewhere in the world, but hugely importantly, to try and think of what's relevant and what's um, what's going to work um, in, in the context of India, which I don't know because I'm a white woman. So although I have visited, it's really important to keep kind of putting it back and drawing in there, you know, and it, sometimes like we're trying to do scenario training and I'll, I'll think of something that I think might work because I know a little. Um, and yeah, again, sometimes, you know, they're, they're far too polite to say, no, that's stupid. Uh, that would never happen. Um, but but sometimes I hit on one that does work and then they'll come back and they say, we, we took that to the workshop and all the women really liked it because of this and this and that. And I go, okay, so that's, there's a little sort of seam of gold there somewhere. Um, and that's what it's been. It's all been sort of trial and error um, and just trying to remember what's working and, and, and build on that. There's, there's a common theme here. Anybody who, if you listen to the podcast, uh, amongst the women who are out here doing actual work. Um, and I, I just want to sum it up here because I feel like it's massively important and it fills a ton of gaps that, uh, as Debbie Steven put it, uh, big, bald, tattooed, white male combat instructors seem to be missing, right? <laughs> but coming at it from a trauma-informed perspective check super important uh looking at your demographic and following the scenarios that they give you to teach them check you've talked about mm -hmm. that debbie talked about it uh beverly baker talked about it um and and then also there yeah. there's women for whatever reason 
this is a gross generalization. I, I don't know if I think like a woman, but it seems like you guys teach the way I teach, but I don't run into a lot of males who teach this way. There's a lot of trial and error and kind of testing. Uh-huh. Hey, did this work? What did you think about this? Okay, let's let's adapt it. Let's shave it down. Let's let's polish it up. Let's let's fix it and make it fit exactly the way that it should. And then also um, the last piece or the first piece, depending on what direction you're coming at it from, is there's a huge focus on soft skills, which is also seems to be missing. Right. Um, I just want to point that out. All three of the major female guests are doing the same thing. And, and, and I feel like that kind of, if you will, as Rich put it, uh, he put it very well. He said, if you, if you think of self-defense as a jar full of sand, that information is the water that fills the mm-hmm. gaps in the sand. Right. So I just, I, I really, sorry, I don't yeah. mean to like steal the, 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 the direction of the podcast for just a second, but I just really want to, I want to highlight that because I believe you know, between these three women, there's been thousands of people trained, thousands of people helped, and and they get tons of feedback that is positive about the work that they're doing. Um, please uh, pay attention, right? Industry, uh, pay attention to to what is is being passed here. I said three win- women. I'm sorry, four women. Uh, Pam. Debbie, uh, Beverly and yourself. Uh, so, you know, really honestly, this is missing from the industry at large and you're looking at helping way more people. If you, if you bring this in, uh, to, to what you're doing, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) No, 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 that's fine. It's kind of, it's encouraging. It kind of makes me feel so much better to hear you say that because, you know, I, I feel like, you know, A, you can't really put me up there with those guys because they've been doing this so much longer than I have and, and so much better. And it's wonderful to be able to have these people for role models for me to learn from. But so I just want to just want to quickly put that there. But also to say that, you know, what we're, what I was talking about, feeling intimidated by the scale of what we have to do um that it's good to see that other people are doing it and to do it successfully and that i feel like i'm just working away at my little corner of that and doing what what i can do um but that when we link up with other people you know it's it's so much more powerful um and and it does work you know this is the thing i, I believe in karate karate works i believe in what we're teaching in terms of the you know that that yes the physical skills but also the soft skills and the soft skills are such kind of mm. things that the world really badly needs. It's about good manners. It's about, like Rich says, fishing for empathy. Oh, God, if more people fish for empathy instead of going off on their own little ego trip, um, then, you know, just imagine just imagine one day in the whole world where everybody did that as a default, that they fish for empathy first instead of, you know, just reacting. Um, that would be and and this that would is be a day of work. like Jeff Thompson says self defense begins with defense against the self i mean i think 
this is something fishing for empathy, using your soft skills. It, this has helped my marriage, right? Like this is the part of martial arts. This kind of interpersonal mm -hmm. verbal judo piece is the, is the piece that applies everywhere, right? If you're talking Oakham's razor, the, the, the 20% that gets you 80% of your results, this is it, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, anyway, yeah. I, I am super pumped about the, the work you guys are doing. Um, and it's, it's been a, a great confirmation for me just because I have a, a very different process to most of my male counterparts when I train people and I get a lot of like eye rolling and kind of why would you do it that way type of responses when, when I detail out how I, how I teach. So it's nice to get, it is, it's nice to get some confirmation that, mm -hmm. Hey, this is out there. This process is there and it works and it works for the people that need it the most honestly yeah. right like those guys that are huge and tattooed up and bench press 400 pounds i mean how much self-defense do they really need be honest you know i know like i say most self-defense is taught by bouncers for bouncers um and it's you know it's a it's a sad truth that most it's just a default and and you know that's part of the jeff thompson legacy like we talked about before but not but it's not fully that it's kind of like unfortunately because there's that huge overlap between martial arts and self-defense and most martial artists want to be you know really hench and you know they they fantasize about uh kind of being Jean-Claude Van Damme really I think that's it's, yeah yeah I mean that's a great way to put it hench I'm stealing that I'm stealing I have never I've never heard that expression before that is now part of my <laughs> vernacular um <laughs> anyway mary i i am super thankful for you to come on and and do this part too i i want to make sure that we cover everything that that uh you feel is important so um i'm gonna kind of pass the reins to you if if you'd like and just uh if there's anything else you really want to draw attention to please you know what what do you think people should be looking at that is not being looked at or training that is not being trained etc mm, that's interesting um I, I think i like i like what you're saying about soft skills i mean i'm, I'm lucky in that most of my um the, you know the, the 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 role models that i have um, and the people that I've kind of taken my, you know, you, you do the, um, the Bruce Lee thing of uh, absorbing and, you know, taking what's useful and so on. And just misquoting that to yeah. somebody who, who, with a background in JKD is horrific. But you know what I'm saying is like you, you learn as much as you can and then you build into what's yours. So um, that's some of the most um, incredible insights have come to me from you know, just steady putting in, putting in the hours, putting in the research and um, learning as much as I can and then sort of finding the people that I most resonate with. Um, so people that have that focus on soft skills, um, on good manners, on um, strong um, focus on situational awareness and de-escalation. I mean, we haven't even said de-escalation yet. And de-escalation is so important. How, how do you de-escalate? And that's just... Um, you know, and again, that's context specific and 
person specific as well you know what what somebody's deal um trying to understand so this whole psychology of that is amazing and, and not studied enough um and can be introduced at a very young age to have people understand how to de-escalate like we were talking about before um i think one of the reasons that women are more successful in this area is because broadly speaking uh we have to de-escalate because we're generally threatened a lot more so um there's a fantastic book by annabelle terry no it's called creepology i don't know if you're familiar with it um okay well I, let me recommend that to your um listeners creepology by anna valdiseri it is entirely soft skills and it's entirely written um from the female point of view about how to deflect creeps um and how to detect what kind of creep they are and how to get and it's interesting because um it's very non-confrontational it, it really is one of the i think it's probably the least confrontational self-defense book i've got and um being a massive geek i've got a gigantic library of these things um she also teaches on trauma aware self-defense instruction um which is which is cool obviously and things that we've, we've touched on um so her her work on de-escalation is also informed by Rory Miller. She's, she's been a student of Rory Miller too, but it's a very feminized version of that, um, which is something that people might be interested in. So yeah, never underestimate the, um, the de-escalation skills of, you know, even a teenage girl has got used to having to deal with um, creeps and that those skills can be then very useful. So uh, one thing that somebody said that I thought was really useful is that if you're running a women's self-defense course, you're starting already from um, a position in which they're already very well informed and they have great skills. They just need to learn how to tap into them and then also trust their instincts and learn how to, how trusting their instincts, you can kind of, they need to give themselves permission to act on their instincts because the other problem is that they are, again, culturally it is not very much not all women um but but culturally um the politeness is is more um ingrained and they're more limited and this is a, really a problem for my women in india because they're you know it, they're kind of being submissive and polite um for women is is so much um deeper in the in, in the psyche than even it is over here so those would be the things that i would say check out um that whole, you know, branch of soft skills that is about non-confrontational non Awesome. Uh, Beverly Baker has an entire reading list that she shared along with her episode. Um, and, and you would probably love, as a, as a fellow geek and a, and, a, and a bibliophile, you would probably love uh -huh. those, those resources. She, she has some stuff that's completely outside of the realm of self-defense entirely uh, that she's, she's found a way to kind of use it in a really productive way within the context of, of uh, self-defense and personal protection. So, oh, you know, I'm going to look that up as soon as we stop talking. <clears throat> that sounds absolutely uh, Well, <laughs> Mary, uh, once again, we're, we're going to wrap here. I think, I think it's a good place to, to end. Um, just, please just plug yourself. I know that's not your, your, your bag, but, but please plug yourself at the end of this episode to just bring attention, get people to uh, come and see your website and everything else. And uh, 
hopefully we can get more people on this train and and get uh get the world de-escalating and fishing for empathy as opposed to headbutts knees and elbows which hey i also love don't don't get me wrong but uh (laughs) likewise i like hitting things extremely hard but i also really like de-escalation so yeah um uh, we can direct people to my website there's not really a lot there to see because i haven't put very much time into doing anything with it but i would love people to get in contact if they feel that it's something that they want to know more about what even is my website it's athenakarate.com but my email is uh, mary at athenakarate.com thank you for taking your the time out of a day that is normally recreational to to record this content with me I, i really really appreciate it